please turn to John chapter 1, verse 19. While you're turning, Christian Herter was running hard for re-election as the governor of Massachusetts. One day he arrived late at a barbecue. He had had no breakfast or lunch, and he was famished. As he moved down the serving line, he held out his plate and received one piece of chicken. The governor said to the serving lady, Excuse me, do you mind if I get another piece of chicken? I'm very hungry. Sorry, I'm supposed to give one piece to each person, the woman replied. But I'm starved, he repeated. And again she said, only one to a customer. Herter was normally a modest man, but he decided this was the time to use the weight of his office and said, Madam, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state. Do you know who I am, she answered. I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Move along, mister. (laughs) John the Baptist knew who he was, and more importantly, he knew who Jesus was. We've concluded John's prologue, uh, the first 18 verses, and we're beginning to study the public ministry of Jesus Christ. We're in the section with the earliest testimonies to Jesus. John's already baptized uh, Jesus, you can tell by comparing with the other Gospels. And Jesus has spent 40 days being tempted in the wilderness and triumphed over the devil there. He comes back to where he was baptized. And at this time, we'll, uh, we'll be looking into John the Baptist's testimony. Now next week, we're going to look at Jesus' calling of his earliest disciples. But this week, we're looking at John the Baptist's testimony to two different groups concerning Jesus Christ. First of all, there was a committee from Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Inquisition, I like to call them. And then secondly, there was what he told the crowd. So, first of all, the committee from Jerusalem. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, John uses the phrase, the Jews, in the sense of the Jewish leaders, which is how it's translated in the New English translation and also the New Living translation. Um, He's been accused of anti-Semitism, strangely enough. I think that's a strange claim for the Apostle John, who was himself a Jew, to be called anti-Semitic. But he's been accused of that because occasionally he says negative things about the Jews. But if you look at the context, he's referring to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And there were some negative things to be said about those gentlemen, but not about the populace at large. But they sent a group to ask him, who are you? That was the burning question. Now, interestingly enough, they didn't ask John, are you the Messiah? Now, we know that that was what was on everybody's mind. If you look at Luke 3, verse 15, it said, Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So that was what was on everybody's mind. They didn't ask John that. They just said, who are you? Or if this were today, they'd probably say, who do you think you are? 
yeah, doing all this stuff. Well, John was a prophet, and John knew prophetically what was on their minds. And so he answered, I'm not the Christ. Now the Greek word Christos, the Hebrew word Mashiach, and even the Aramaic word Mashiach, all mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. Now what did they anoint for? They anointed kings, they anointed priests, and they anointed prophets. And remember when we studied Hebrews, we saw that all of those are in Jesus' realm. But specifically, they were looking for a descendant of David to be a king, an anointed one. John freely confessed he was not that anointed one. He is not the Messiah. John knew who he was. He didn't get to believing his own press releases, I guess. Yeah. He knew who he was, and he knew who Jesus was. They asked him then, verse 21, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. What then? Are you Elijah? See, the Jews expected Elijah to come. And this was because of Malachi's prophecy. If you look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi prophesied, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the father's hearts to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, Elijah had an interesting end, didn't he? Anybody ever read in scripture about the death of Elijah? Nope. Because he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He got he had an early version of the rapture. Yeah. He went straight to heaven. Now, my personal conviction and the conviction of many church fathers was that Elijah is going to be one of the two witnesses in Revelation eleven uh, that precede the day of the Lord. Now. I don't think that's something that you break fellowship with people over if they disagree with you, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration also. So Elijah was expected to come before the day of the Lord. But there's a problem here, isn't it? Because Jesus himself said that John was Elijah. There in Matthew 11, Jesus said, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, key phrase, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. I think the answer to this parallels very closely what happens with Jesus. The Messiah comes not once, but twice. That was part of the reason for the confusion in Judaism was that they expected a Messiah to come and reign because that was the picture that they saw clearest. But they didn't expect one to come and be a sacrifice, be a suffering servant, as Isaiah did in Isaiah 53. So there's two comings to Messiah. In the same way, there's two forerunners. There's a non-literal one. That's the Messiah's forerunner when he comes to suffer. That's John. John is an Elijah, but not the Elijah. That's the difference. And then there's a very literal one before the day of the Lord, when the Messiah will establish his rule. There's going to come the original Elijah. Yeah, he may have taken a short trip to heaven, but fortunately, our rapture is not like his. His rapture went up and will turn around and come back down. You know, <laughs> so. He will come before the day of the Lord. 
before the Messiah establishes his kingdom. So when John the Baptist was asked, are you Elijah? He's answering that very literal question. Are you literally Elijah? Are you the one that was caught up to heaven? No. No, I'm not. Okay? Is he in the spirit and the power of Elijah? Yeah. Luke chapter 1 said he was going to be. Um, is he you know, Messiah's forerunner for his first coming? Yep. You know, and so in those ways, he is an Elijah, but he's not the Elijah. Okay? Are you the prophet? They asked him, and he answered, no. I think it's very interesting. All these answers get shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah, I don't know if John was a patient person or not, but in Greek, the first one took five words, then two words, then only one. If you look at Aramaic, it only took four words, two words, and one word. You know, but he kept getting shorter, shorter, shorter. You know, and so he answers flat, no. <laughs> okay. Well, this prophet refers to a prediction that Moses made in Deuteronomy chapter eighteen, verse fifteen. Said. Uh, Moses predicted the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your countrymen and you shall listen to him because this is said to be a prophet like Moses this is not just any prophet he didn't say that the Lord your God will raise up just any old prophet but he'll raise up one like me and this has usually been taken um to refer to the Messiah himself as another way of referring to the Messiah as being the ultimate prophet. Um, There was some confusion about that in first century Judaism. They weren't sure whether that was the forerunner or some special prophet or the Messiah himself. There was a variety of opinion, but it would have been yet another uh, special title that John could have taken to himself. In his humility, he didn't even claim that. Okay. What then, they say, who are you? We've got to give an answer. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. You're going to send us back empty-handed. We won't have anything to tell the committee. What are we going to answer them? You know? And John said, tell them I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This is, what I, this is the actual verse, uh, 3 through 5. It says, A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's interesting about this. This is quoted in in the Gospels as referring to John the Baptist and in John's Gospel of John referring to himself. But interestingly enough, of those verses, Isaiah 43 through 5, only verse 3 is quoted. Why might that be? When is every valley going to be lifted up and every mountain laid low? When is all that going to happen? You know, Zechariah talks about, you know, there being all kinds of tectonic changes, you know, when, when the Lord's feet put land on the Mount of Olives. The glory of the Lord being revealed to all flesh When's that going to happen? When the Messiah establishes his kingdom.
And so the scripture is being very, very precise. Kind of, it's kind of similar to in the in a synagogue at Capernaum where Jesus said, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me; He's anointed me to preach good news, etc." And then it also says, "And the day of judgment of our God." He stopped. He read half the verse. Some of us might accuse him of reading things out of context. Yeah, but he read half of the verse and stopped. Why? The first half of the verse had been fulfilled. The second half is still future. Okay, It's not a time of judgment right now. It's a time of grace. So since those other two verses refer to the day of the Lord, it precisely stops at that point. Now, John's preaching of repentance is not what John's gospel emphasizes. Matter of fact, as I've pointed out, the word repent doesn't even show up in John's gospel. But it is... Um, nonetheless a common theme in first century Judaism and it was certainly a theme in John the Baptist preaching. Rabbi Eliezer for instance said if Israel repent they will be redeemed. Another rabbi Rabbi Levi said if Israel kept the Sabbath properly even for one day the son of David would come. Rabbi Yohanan said the Holy One blessed be he told Israel Though I've set a definite time for the millennium which will come at the appointed time whether Israel returns to me in penitence or not, still, if they repent for even one day, I will bring it before its appointed time. That was how much they put a store on repentance. If we could just get Israel to repent, even for one day, if we could get our act together, you know, was their idea. Now, that's kind of a works orientation, definitely, but that was, that was the mindset they had. John the Baptist, I, th- I think, is uh, a little different than that, obviously. Uh, the Greek word repent means to change your mind. It's really not a complicated idea at all. You're thinking the wrong way, you need to think right. So change your mind. It's not the same thing as faith. And that's why I think John, who's very clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing... John doesn't emphasize repentance because he knows you've got to be thinking the right thing before you can put your trust in Christ. So he doesn't see a conflict there. It's not the same thing as faith, but what repentance does, what changing your mind does, it clears out the wrong thinking that keeps you from trusting in Christ. Or, for the Christian, that keeps you from being in harmony with God. So the question is, how do I get back in harmony with God? You know, if you have misconceptions, you know, like, uh, well, Messiah is not going to die for our sins, Messiah is just going to set up a kingdom, well, that's a wrong thinking. You would need to repent of that. Uh, if you were thinking that Messiah is not going to come, that would be wrong thinking. You've got to repent of that. See, so it clears the deck so that you can place your faith in Christ. It brings you into harmony with what God thinks about it. It's been well pointed out that John is a voice. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Jesus is the word. He's the message. So John knew it was his place. He knew what his place was. His place was to prepare for Jesus' coming. Not the Messiah. Not Elijah. Not the second Moses. Just, I'm here to prepare the way. Well, 
next thing, of course, that leads to is, well, why are you baptizing? What authority do you have for this? Now, the crowd that were asking him these questions, it says they'd been sent from the Pharisees. That's kind of interesting because the ruling group in the Sanhedrin, the high court of Judaism, was predominantly Sadducee. Um, But this specific group, it says, came from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the separated ones, literally. That's what their name means. Uh, Parushim means separated ones. They believed all of the Old Testament. The Sadducees just believed the Torah, the five books of Moses. But But the Pharisees believed the entire Old Testament. But they didn't stop there. They also believed a whole bunch of oral traditions that they had. Um, if you read through the Talmud, it's a collection, and occasionally I'll quote it for background material here, which it's a whole collection of, oh, Rabbi so-and-so said that Rabbi so-and-so used to said that Rabbi so-and-so said, you know, and everything's on authority, on authority, on the authority, on the authority, all the way back. That's why they said Jesus was so startling when he spoke, he spoke on his own authority. You know, the only one he ever referred to was the Father. He never said, well, as Rabbi Gamaliel says, you know, he didn't do that. And that startled them. Um, the Pharisees believed then in all these oral traditions. And they had this concept that it's as if you build a fence around the law. They literally called it that. That say, here's the law. Well, it's got 613 commandments. But we don't want to break any of those. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up all these other rules about the rules. And in the process of keeping the rules about the rules, we won't break the rules. That's the thought. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, you know, you guys are missing it because your very traditions cause you to transgress the law. Your very traditions are what caused the problem. So, that was, that was the Pharisees. They believed in the resurrection. Paul, strategically in Acts, started a fight one time by referring to that. There was Pharisees and there were Sadducees around. And, and, uh, and Paul said, well, I'm here because of the resurrection. And the next thing you know, the Pharisees are fighting the Sadducees and they forgot all about Paul. This group was very important, but they weren't very large. Uh, Josephus says there were only about 6,000 Pharisees at the time. Not a lot. But when the rebellion against Rome happened in AD 70, the crowd that survived, that even went to the Romans and got them to uh, allow them to open up a school in another place, was the Pharisees. And so they won the battle because basically the Sadducees got wiped out along with the temple. And uh, (coughs) so rabbinical Judaism is essentially Phariseeism. Uh, pretty much and they were the ones who who came out on top so they asked him and said to him why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet so their second question is about authority not identity it's no longer who are you it's why are you doing this now baptism dipping literally is the meaning of the Greek um, the idea of washing is not foreign to Judaism matter of fact um First century Judaism, they were probably the cleanest people in the ancient world because the law has a ton of, well, ton, I don't know how you'd qualify that in verses, but it has a lot of references. If this happens, you've got to take a bath. If this happens, you've got to take a bath. Before you do this, you've got to take a bath. As a matter of fact, uh, the 
baths that they had, they're called mikvah, and mikvahot in the plural, that's the mark of Jewish communities for, for archaeologists. If an archaeologist is digging and he wants to know, is this a Jewish town? Two things he looks for. One is the absence of any pig bones, okay, because they wouldn't eat pork. Okay. Then the other part is all these ritual baths. And you find them all over the place, public, private. That's a mark of a Jewish community. They were that much into ritual cleanness uh, that the bath was very important. Now, also, if you were a proselyte, a convert to Judaism, then you got baptized also. Not very, in a way, it would look ceremonially a lot like Christian baptism. Okay, that in that way you were ceremonially putting off your old life as a Gentile, and you were now officially a Jew. Also, uh, the Jewish sect at Qumran, probably the Essenes was their name, they bathed several times a day, so they were even cleaner than most. That was just part of their regular thing, that they were going to stay ritually clean at all times, and so they were constantly bathing. I hope they didn't use the water from the Dead Sea because that's yucky. But anyway, <laughs> but the um, so there was a lot of people baptizing, but they knew that there was something different about John's baptism. Okay, and that's what they wanted to know: what's the significance here? And they probably expected John to defend himself on the basis of ritual and all that sort of thing, but actually he had a very different answer because John knew what he was here for. John answered and said to them, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It's he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John's baptism, he says, is only symbolic. It's only water. That's all I've got to offer, is water. But John indicated his successor was in the crowd, and that the committee, the... uh, Inquisition from Jerusalem didn't know him. Imagine that really made him go crazy. You know, going, well, who is it? You know, looking around, who, who, who? Yeah, he's among you. He's among you right now, and you don't know him. John said, "He comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie." That's. I don't know if any of you have ever participated in a foot washing service. I've, I've never belonged to a church that considered that as a ritual like the um, Primitive Baptists do, for instance. But uh, it's a very humbling thing um, to take off somebody's shoe to wash their foot. It usually makes the person getting their feet washed a little uncomfortable, too. But, you know, it's like, yeah, this is a very menial position to be in, to do that. So much so that... Um, in the Talmud, it's, uh, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi ruled, All manner of service that a slave must render to his master, a student must render to his teacher, except the taking off of his shoes. That was too menial. It's very interesting also, in view of John 13, as we'll see later, Jesus takes off the shoes of the disciples and washes their feet. Uh, a definite position of, hum- of humility. Too humble even for a rabbinical student to do for his rabbi. Anything else that a slave would do, a student could do, but not that. So, John the Baptist considers himself unworthy to be even considered on a level of one of Jesus' students. He considers himself unworthy to be even considered a slave. 
I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. That would be too great an honor. What an example of humility. Yeah. As my wife Lois says, John the Baptist is not one of these people who thinks he's all that plus a bag of chips. <laughs> he knows it's not about him. It's about Jesus. He's truly humble man. By the way, he mentions the location of these events. And it's interesting because I'm sure this clarified things when John wrote, and it's confused everybody since. Uh, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Um, the location's not certain. The only thing this does do for us is there's another Bethany where Lazarus lived that was not on any river. It's just over the hill from Jerusalem, and it's certainly not it. Um, but we don't know. We don't know the actual town. Uh, there's several possibilities that it could be. The one thing that we do know about this, though, is all the possibilities basically put it in the area that's called Perea. Uh, that's modern western Jordan, and that was where Herod Antipas uh, was the ruler. And Herod Antipas was the one who ended up imprisoning uh, John the Baptist, putting him in a fortress called Machaerus, which was also in the area of Perea. Uh, so basically, somewhere in modern western Jordan, on the other bank of the Jordan River, is where we ex- we expect that this is. But John may have clarified it for everybody back then, but you know, like I said, we're all scratching our heads. We don't know. We don't know exactly where it was. Um, isn't really important, thankfully. Now, the next group that John the Baptist bore testimony to it uh, is the crowd itself and says the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world now we've got a series of days here I thought about a dramatic title like a week that changed the world because it really did Uh, this is an incredible series of days that we have but he starts off here the next day so after the, the inquisition from Jerusalem had left the very next day, John sees Jesus coming to him. He, call, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. What is he thinking of? Yeah. Could be the Passover Lamb. This was pretty close to Passover, um, as, we, as near as we can determine. And John, in his Gospel, focuses on several Passovers as sort of markers chronologically. Um, so it could be Passover. And certainly the Passover lamb we've talked about before is a wonderful example of Christ that even in striking the uh, the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost, you know, on the doorposts and on the lintel, you make the sign of the cross. You can, um, you know, it's done, the blood is applied with hyssop. Uh, hyssop was used when Jesus was on the cross to lift up the, the vinegar to him to see if he'd take something to drink, which he refused. Um <laughs> You know, none of Christ's bones were broken. None of the Passover lamb's bones are broken. There's a number of parallels. And death passes over the one covered by the blood of Christ in the same way that death passed over at night in Egypt. So all of those things you know, could point to the Passover lamb being uh, what he was referring to. I think there's a more general uh, explanation, though, and that is that in Isaiah 53 the famous suffering servant passage, it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That sort of suffering lamb imagery in Isaiah 53 ties in very well with Jesus. 
that the sins of us all have been laid upon Christ. I think John's probably taking taking a little more uh, general look like that. There's also a possible pun in Aramaic. I, I love puns, and I always love it when I find one in Scripture. Um, of course, this is not written in Aramaic. It's written in Greek. But uh, there is an Aramaic word, talia, which means both servant and lamb. Uh, so there's a possible pun there uh, among the originals. So, who takes away the sin of the world? Need we have any ad- any doubt about the extent of the atonement? I know I'm stepping on Calvinist toes here, but <laughs> on five pointers anyway. But the extent of the atonement is the entire world. He takes away the sin of the world. Now. If, lest we think that that's just all kinds of people, uh, you know, John wrote also in 1 John 2 2, he is himself the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies justice for our sins, who's our? John and those he's in fellowship with, believers, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. World for John is not a neutral term. He's talking about. The society of people in rebellion along with Satan, organized against God, cosmos has all of those negative connotations, and yet those are the ones, those are the ones that, he, that Christ died for. So the atonement extends for the entire world. Now, does that mean the whole world is saved? If it, if it does, then I should hear somebody shouting heresy, you know, rending robes here and throwing things at me, because obviously that's not the case. People are, yeah, he's winding up there. Uh, yeah, but people are, are clearly lost. They're clearly lost people. And why, why then? How can that happen? Well, because Christ paying the penalty for everyone's sin makes all men savable. It does not make all men saved. In Romans 5, Paul was clear that it's those who received that atonement who benefited from it. So it makes the world savable, but not saved. He existed before him. He said, uh, John makes a point here that John the Evangelist is actually made earlier, verse 15, that this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a rank higher than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. Or as Barclay translated this, a man is coming after me who ranks before me before he, before he existed, before I was born. Now, look at Luke one twenty six. Jesus was born six months after John. So John was older by six months. Um, he began his ministry later than John. John's baptizing, and Jesus has not yet appeared on the scene. You know, um, but because of Christ's pre-existence, because as as Micah five two says, his going forth were from the days of eternity, from of old. That um, in the beginning the Word already was. Then, because of that, no matter what their relative age, ages on this earth. Uh, Jesus clearly is before John the Baptist. Now, it's interesting to me is Jesus is in fact related to John the Baptist. We compare Luke's Luke chapter one, but there's no indication apparently that they had any contact growing up. After Mary's visit, there's you know no mention in any of the Gospels of any other visits, and it may be that they actually didn't know each other, though they're related. Um, 
Or it is simply, it could be simply that John the Baptist going, you know, I didn't know he was the Messiah. What a shock to find out that your your cousin is the Christ. Yeah, I mean, I've already thought about how how rough it would be on his brothers and sisters. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus for an older brother? Married constantly saying, why don't you be good like your brother Yeshua? You know, I can hear it, you know. But the shock of finding out that your cousin was the Christ. It'd really be a shock with any of mine because none of them are that nice. But uh, (laughs) now I'm in trouble with my family when they listen to this. Uh, But nonetheless... Yeah. They, uh, so one of those two is possible. Either they didn't really have much contact with each other, or it's possible John knew him, but he just didn't know he was the Christ. And that's entirely possible, too. John testified, saying, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The Greek word translated, I have seen, theaomai, is a perfect tense verb. And theaomai is the word we get things like theater from in English. Uh, It's one of those 46,000 some odd English words that borrow from Greek. Um, But it it indicates, the perfect tense indicates that the effect of having that vision abides with him. You know, perfect tenses happened in the past and then the results continue to the present. Well, this made a mark on John the Baptist seeing this. Um, it means, according to the lexical definition, is to have an intent look at something, to take something in with one's eyes with the implication that one is especially impressed. This was an impressive thing that he saw with seeing the Holy Spirit come down on him. Now, this also was predicted especially Isaiah. Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, or to the Gentiles. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring forth good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners. And there he stopped because the other part's about the coming judgment. And the image of the Holy Spirit as a dove goes all the way back to Genesis 1, where he hovers over the waters in creation. So... As the other Gospels point out, Jesus is the one who's going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That's something entirely new. As one one writer that I was reading this week pointed out and kind of startled me because I, I didn't think he believed in baptismal regeneration. He said, you know, nobody is ever saved without being baptized. I thought, oh my, this is different theology than I expected. But he went on to point out, it's not about the water. It's about the Holy Spirit. And that's true. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ, and you're placed in connection with Him. And nobody ever is saved without that. Okay? Now, the water, just a symbol. Just a symbol. But the reality baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That's a necessity. 
if you're not, you know, in if you're not uh, in connection with the with the body of Christ, if you're not in union with Christ, no, you're not saved. I want to be sure everybody gets that right, though. I'm not talking about the liquid. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> okay, um, so Jesus Christ is the anointed one, but he's also the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John's final testimony. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Son of God is a a central concept for John. It appears 29 times in John's Gospel. Now, John's made it real plain in his prologue that he considers Jesus Christ to be God in human flesh. So Son of God, for John, does not mean a step less than God. Right? Because the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was divine, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the the only begotten God, or the one and only God, is in the bosom of the Father. He explains the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. So, it's clear that he's not talking about some secondary status here. uh, Second class God, or anything like that. He's talking about God the Son, when he's talking about Jesus Christ. And that's the testimony of John the Baptist. So, What do we do with this? The most important theological question there is, is so what? Okay, so what do we do with this? Well, first of all, John the Baptist is a great example. Like John the Baptist, we need to know who Jesus is and who we are. We we need to know it's not about us, it's about him. He He is what is paramount. We need to know, like John did, that Jesus is the word, but we're voices. Our job is to prepare for Jesus' coming too. On an individual level, prepare people for the gospel, to share the gospel with them. And the body of Christ has a key role, I'm convinced, in these days leading up to the rapture, of preparing people for the second coming also, for the rapture of the church and for the coming of Christ to rule. John the Baptist's example tells us a lot about humility. And it goes right along with knowing that it's all about Jesus. That is a natural, humble position. doesn't deny what you really are and what God's really done. But it simply says, you know, the really important thing here isn't me. What a good thing for us to have in mind, huh? It also says three things about how we look at Jesus Christ. That he's the sacrificial lamb. He makes the whole world savable that that sacrifice that he's going to make is going to pay for the sins of the entire world. That he's the anointed one, anointed with the Holy Spirit, who also baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who unites us with him through the Holy Spirit and also the one that empowers us. That's also how we should look at Jesus Christ. But most importantly... As John's already laid out in the in the prologue, we should realize that Jesus is God the Son. That the one who came, who suffered, who died, who rose again for you and I, is no less than God himself. That hanging on that cross was God the Son.
That's how we should look at Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word and we just pray that in our hearts would spring up an appreciation for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for uniting us to yourself. Thank you for for taking our sins upon yourself on the cross and for dying for the whole world. Lord, thank you that uh, you've given us a mission too, to be a voice. And you're the message. In humility, may we always lift you up before a world that desperately needs to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.